Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Digging with Peter. As usual, I'm your host, Peter, as if you didn't already know that. Today, Dre and I are reviewing, well, not so much reviewing, rehashing, revisiting Nirvana's seminal live album, MTV Unplugged in New York. And the off chance you haven't heard this album a whole lot already, there's a, there's a link to it in the show notes. But uh, enough of that, let's get going, and uh, I'll see you on the other side. This week's listening, we are focused on Nirvana's MTV Unplugged in New York from its a re- concert recording of sorts, recorded in November of 1993. It wasn't released until November of 1994, and in between then, a whole bunch of shit went down. This came after the release, Nirvana's third studio album, In Utero. Do you have any history with this album? What do you what do you remember of it from the time? I remember it being this recording, the concert being played, because I was a big MTV head back then, mm-hmm. and how much I dodged this. Why did you dodge it? Because I've never been a fan of recorded live performances. If I'm going to listen to a recording, I want it to be a studio recording. I want to hear live performances live. I'd never like to hear them because it doesn't, the quality's not good to me. So I wouldn't even watch them. Okay. So after having listened to this, what do you think about the quality of the recording? I wish I had given live recordings more props back in the day because I really enjoyed listening to it this time. I don't know how many people were actually in the studio audience for this, but it clearly wasn't like multiple thousands. This might have been like 100 plus people, maybe at best. Yeah, It it feels very intimate. It looked that way because I've seen snippets of this one and other unplugged performances and they're like... They remind me of a nice play where there's everybody's around, like you're fully surrounding the stage. Right, like a theater in the round? Yeah, I love it. In addition to the live setting, there are also a, a few more people on stage than would be normal for Nirvana. I do know that that Pat Smear, who is on stage for this, was not a, a regular studio member of Nirvana, but he had been touring with them for a little while at that point on second guitar. Uh, they have a cellist with them. Uh, Lori Goldstein, I think it was. And then they also had Kurt Kirkwood and Chris Kirkwood of the Meat Puppets providing an extra guitar and an extra bass. A number of their tracks are also performed in this. So it starts off with something from their first studio album about a girl, and it's the only the only track from that album on here. There were a number of covers on this album from, you get the, the Vaseline's track, Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam, Actually, I think when on their release, it was actually Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam or something like that. There was an EP that was released on by the Vaselines, and I was briefly considering whether or not I should buy that. But then I saw, then I checked again and it'd be like 100 bucks for me to, to get it. I'm like, no, I think I'll skip on that for now. You get the, uh, the David Bowie cover of The Man Who Sold the World. Three tracks off of the Meat Puppets second album, which was very creatively titled Meat Puppets 2. Plateau, Omi, and Lake of Fire. And then you get the the closing track on the album, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which is a traditional tune, and they picked it up from something Lead Belly did. That could explain why so much of this was familiar to me. I came into this thinking, oh, I'm not going to know much. I just know them in passing. And I'm like, I know half this album, over half this album. So by the time we get to MTV Unplugged in New York, uh, Nirvana had pretty much mastered the the loud, quiet, loud repertoire that they kind of built up 
and mm-hmm. in grunge. They didn't go real loud for most of this. They got powerful, but not necessarily loud. And I think that actually worked really well. It's really Because nice. what you hear, at least from my perspective, is you hear Kurt Cobain not screaming, but more emoting. He sounds like he's feeling a heavy burden on pretty much everything here. Even in those little like between track segments where he's like kind of joking around. This might be just me projecting because we all know what happened, what he did to himself afterward. Right. But it really feels like he's, it kind of feels like gallows humor at this point. Yeah. The way I listen to this, reading every lyric as I listen to every song, I'm like, okay, this is a bit much for me. Knowing what I know and going through this right now, I'm like, okay, I'm going to need to take a nap after listening this way because I, mm, mm. <laughs> My notes, I'm like, I'm not saying this on on, on camera, but, you know, <laughs> I got a good feeling for where he was at. <laughs> I feel well, like by doing this the way I did. I don't remember how long ago it was it came out, but there was the big, uh, the big Nirvana box set called With the Lights Out. And it's a pretty good overall retrospective of Nirvana from pre-Nirvana, Kurt and Chris playing in various whatevers up through the very end and some of the stuff they put together from the few recordings he left behind. And that was actually one of the few things I did listen straight through all however many CDs in the box set. Ooh. And from what I can recall from when I did that, I feel like there was definitely a progression, a measured serious progression in tone and style, but also his ability from those very beginning things, which a lot of them were like very messy, very ugly, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Raw? Yes, raw. Thank you. Ooh, yeah. Very raw things to the end. You can definitely chart a progression in Kurt Cobain's ability in all facets. And it kind of leads up to this. This is beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, it absolutely is. I think it was a really good call. that They skipped things like Smells Like Teen Spirit because, mm-hmm. first of all, I'm not sure how well that would have worked in this style. They skipped Heart Shaped Box, which I think might have worked in this style, maybe. And a lot of these tracks, I think they sound better here than they did on the original studio albums, the arrangements and the feeling. It makes it sound also planned. Yeah, I think it kind of was. <laughs> I know that you know that I love David Bowie. Absolutely love David Bowie. But when somebody mentions The Man Who Sold the World, his is not the recording I think of first. And when I put on The Meat Puppet's second album, I don't hear Plateau and Omi and Lake of Fire the way they perform it. I'm like, this sounds wrong. This isn't what Nirvana did. (laughs) And that's funny because I think these are the versions that I know of those songs because I didn't listen to them otherwise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, what are you talking about? I have to go see what these songs are because all I know is this. And I'm like, who else could do it? As far as I know, it's cool. One thing I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought of before I sat down and listened to this this time around. I must've, I must've listened to this like six or seven times through the last week. (laughs) How much Christian imagery there is here, Yeah, which is not something you ever, I don't think anybody really associates Nirvana with that. That caught me off guard too. I have no idea what his religious beliefs were, if if they even existed. But he clearly had something for that kind of imagery in song. Yeah. Did you did you have a, a few favorites on here that you wanted to highlight or talk about? What's funny is the one that has lyrics that stuck out for me was not one that I was 
would call a favorite. Like the lyrics that jumped out of me came from Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam. Mm-hmm. And the sunbeams are never made like me and don't expect me for, to die for me. Or two lines that just jumped right out of me when I heard them. But the song itself does nothing for me. Mm-hmm. It's just Different. the lyrics. Just the lyrics. But oh. then Dumb just pulled on all my heartstrings. I was like, I know what he's talking about. Like, I feel this. I've felt this. I've been there. I think a lot of people who suffer from (laughs) depression or have suffered with depression feel that song like on a visceral level. Yeah. Like I did not listen to this. I listened to this one twice because the second time was when I did the lyric thing and I was like, I can't do this again. It was, it was a lot. This was a whole lot. Like my notes are all just emotions, emotions and interpretations and stars where I put point out the ones I knew. Dumb is one of those tracks that I think definitely works better here than it did on it on the original studio album on In Utero. I don't know if you can really call it angry. I think it's more defiant on In Utero. Here it's more sad. Yeah, that was the recurring thing. Sad. But I love it because <laughs> it was so, so, so beautiful to listen to. Mm-hmm. I have like this weird conflict in my brain of like the emotion that it inspires in me, but then the way it sounds to me musically, I'm just like, I just want to keep listening to it over and over and over again, but I should not. The album as a whole has so much replay value. Yeah. No. <laughs> Either I was raised on R&B and hip hop and Motown and old 70s soul, like stuff like that. So this, I got purely from the fact that we did have MTV and I slept with my TV on MTV. So when this came to be and then he passed away I got to hear this every single night and I never paid attention because normally I'd be reading or something because I was just it was background noise yeah and so like there's a familiar there's a familiarity with it but it didn't really click because it wasn't part of my environment I didn't get it from anywhere except the tv so that's all I knew and I knew I liked it but where do I go to find more of it I didn't know what station to turn to I wasn't buying a whole bunch of music back then back then so it just was MTV. And I like those guys. Don't ask me any more questions. <laughs> if if Kurt Cobain hadn't decided to end his life, we would still be talking about this album. It would maybe we album. would not be talking about it as much. And maybe it wouldn't mean as much to a lot of other people. But I think yeah. I think it still holds up uh, on its own, even without the context it was recorded or released under yeah because we still be talking about him and nirvana and all of that because it it resonated with so many people without the tragedy if you had had to pick a an a1 absolute best track off of this album what would it be i like come as you are that's the one that gets in my head and i sing it like really 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 sing it and even though it's a sad song, it still makes me smile because it's not so dark and sad because of the way I feel it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I take it as vulnerability. So, yeah, come as you are will be my top one. I have to pick all apologies for this. So we want to talk about uh, about ratings on our traditional one to ten scale. As something that I would think of as far as like, is this the album I'm going to buy? And am I going to listen to it? Would it be in my rotation? Yes, yes, and yes. So I'm going to give it a 7.5 there. Wait, wait, wait. 7.5? Yes, because I would buy it and I would listen to it. Would I hear it a lot? No, because it's not in the genre of music that I listen to the most often. But if I had to choose from genres that I don't listen to much, it's in the top of those. Why the point five? 
because it's not quite an eight, but it's definitely not a seven. Okay, if I if I <laughs> if I forced you to choose between seven or eight, because I don't like this point oh. five stuff. We've already got a ten point scale. Gosh darn it! Then it have to be an eight then. But if I listen to this album like I did with all these words and all these emotions, I got to put this down on the floor because I can't stomach this on a regular basis. No, you you have to be willing to swallow some feelings on this one. Um, listen, if I had to do this basically on feelings alone, I cannot listen to this album on a whole lot. It's too much. It's, it's way too much for me. I drank a glass of wine after this one. <laughs> 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 and half of one during. It was a lot. <laughs> Your turn. I think this actually tops any of their studio albums for me. I'm giving this a nine. Ooh. This is an album I would miss if I did not have access to it. It's not necessarily one I would, although maybe I would. Maybe I would take this to my proverbial desert island. But man, it's this, heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. There are less heavy, sad albums we could have up there, you know? <laughs> So, so yeah, I'm going to stick by my nine rating, but I reserve the right to change my mind at any moment, knowing that the only way this album could go is up. All right. Do you want to, do you want to take a guess on how many, how many copies this thing has sold? You want me to make that guess? I want you to guess. I don't even know what the best albums sell like, because I don't ever pay attention. So I'm just, don't shoot me, but I'm going to say, because I like fives, I'm going to go with five million. The RIAA mm -hmm. has certified this eight times platinum. And in order to get a platinum record, you need to sell a million copies. So, oh. so it has sold at least eight million copies in the US. Well, that wasn't that bad then. No, you did good. Do we have any, any parting thoughts? If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> So are we ready to, uh, to see what we've got in store for next week? Hey, Google, give me a number between 1 and 2050. 1037. 1037 uh, is Me First and the Gimme Gimmies uh, and their album, Take a Break. And that's our show for today. I suppose this is the traditional podcast place where I exhort you to leave ratings or reviews for us on whatever platform you're using. Consider this your warning. Just just do it, and I don't want to have to send the goons. Thank you to Dre for joining me, and of course to you for joining us. Until next time, be good to your music, because it's been good to you. <laughs>